0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show is pre-recorded on May 17th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the fifth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, talking about how democracy works and encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about democracy and unions. Do they need each other? We'll talk about the historical and contemporary link between labor organizing and expanding political rights like voting. Is union organizing an important, if not essential, tool in building a vibrant democracy? Has the diminution of labor unions contributed to the politics of resentment? Has it provided fertile ground for the current moment of populist anger and stridently divided politics? What led to the demise of unions over the last half century, and how could they come back? This is Anne Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests. David Madland is a resident senior fellow and the senior advisor to the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress. He's the author of the new book, Reunion, How Bold Labor Reforms Can Repair, Revitalize, and Reunite the United States. Thanks for joining us, David.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Cynthia Finney is president of the Maine AFL-CIO. She was the first woman elected to that position in 2015 and has held it ever since. Welcome, Cynthia. We're so pleased you're here.
2: Glad to be here with both of you.
0: Thanks. So the number of unionized workers in the U.S. dropped again in 2020, continuing a steady decline since 1983. Today, the share of U.S. workers in unions stands at around 10.8%, less than half of what it was in 1983, and that's less than it was um, at the end of World War II. Just last month, the high-profile attempt to unionize Amazon's retail workers in Bessemer, Alabama, went down to a sharp defeat. At the same time, our country is facing a Jane dangerous moment of divisive politics and a threat of populist authoritarianism. Is that just a coincidence? Some advocates and analysts have been suggesting a symbiotic link between strong unions and a vibrant democracy, and we're going to talk about that today. Do democracies need unions to flourish? So, David, I'm going to put it to you first, and ask you to make a briefcase because I know you got a book on this subject. But um, make a briefcase—the um, short version. Version is union organizing an important, if not essential, tool in building a vibrant democracy.
1: Well, uh, so the short answer, I think, is yes. And first, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks very much for for having me and giving me the opportunity to answer that. And the reason I think that uh, unions and democracy go together is that. What you, the, the basic thing that unions do is they help equalize power in the, econ, in the economy and in the democracy so that wealthy and business owners uh, don't just control both both things and that we can have a reasonable balance of power and that, you know, we can go into the sort of the details of sort of why that is and, and sort of how it's played out in the history of U.S. as well as other countries. But really, this equalizing power is really important. Important because democracy does not function well when power is very concentrated in the top and that the most people don't have a way to have some influence.
0: Uh, Cynthia, we know from our work in the League of Women Voters, and we just separ- celebrated the suffrage centennial last year, we know that some of the earliest pro- proponents of women voting were women labor unions. Talk about the link between voting and labor unions and organizing.
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, those links are, those links are strong. Unions um, are practically democratic by definition. You know, we elect leaders. Um, uh, it's about balancing power, as David said. And um, in Maine, uh, unions were active. Uh, they were the primary drivers behind what became the law that established our citizens initiative. For the referendum process, that was back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and there was a women's uh, um, a women's union organization that was also very active during the suffrage fight, advocating for both rights for both for black men and for women. As you may know, those were uh, not necessarily combined in the minds of everyone who was fighting uh, for that suffrage. Uh, but it was in Lewiston, Maine, uh, with that group and. Um, And we continue today to be active in coalitions, uh, working to um, support voting rights and to uh, fight back against efforts to make voting difficult.
0: Has that been historically the case, David, that unions have been advancing, you know, specific voting rights for different populations um, throughout their history?
1: Very much so, and I don't know how far you want to go back, but you know it's true in the U.S. But if you look at other countries, uh, most of Europe, whereas the labor movement was essential to actually creating a semblance of democracy in most of sort of continental Europe, that the labor movement was sort of the democratic part of the democracy movement. And then if you look in the United States, you know we had you know white male suffrage much earlier than we had labor unions, but as we the fight to expand. The democ- democracy to women, uh, blacks, and to actually make those rights real. Labor unions have been, been critical from the Civil Rights Act to the suffrage movement, as, as Cynthia was mentioning. And so there's a, there's a strong relationship. Now, I'm not getting, you know, this isn't about unions being perfect or always being on the, the right side of, of history. But in general, they have been uh, promoting union rights for all workers. And part of the rights for all workers is the ability to participate in democracy.
0: I was just reading something about um, that states with strong labor unions actually have a significantly higher percentage of voter participation. And states with right to work laws have a lower percentage. Are you familiar with that, Cynthia?
1: Yes. Oh,
2: go (laughs) ahead. So, hey, no no there. Cynthia you asked <laughs> Cynthia. so uh, I didn't know that particular statistic but I do know that we have um, good turnout and we work hard for that um, unions across the country work on both educating members about the issues that are going to be at the ballot about the candidates that are going to be at the ballot ballot and we run a tremendous uh, voter turnout effort to get sh- make sure that members and their household members, go to vote. And those, our reports afterwards show that those efforts um, bring results. I I,
0: um, I know that the top voting states are also the top unionized states, like Maine is always right up there, and we have a relatively high percentage of union members, and Minnesota is probably up there too. But David, comment on um, those statistics about union states and voting and right-to-work states and voting, if you're familiar with them.
1: Sure. Well, a big part of this turnout, the unions help you know, workers turn out because they educate them about the issues and they help connect sort of these amorphous policy ideas to their real life and explain that, um, and as Cynthia was highlighting. But that's especially important, especially for low-income workers and those with less education. So that's where you see the biggest turnout boost. But more than just sort of this individual participation, unions also help ensure that the laws around voting are fair. So that it's not just we're getting our, our voters out out to turn out, but we are ensuring the laws that you can actually register for, to vote, that, you know, there are open polling places and the like. So it is both about individual and system-wide participation. Uh,
0: Cynthia, explain to our listeners what a right-to-work law actually is. And then I want to circle back on that one with one more question.
2: Sure. Sure. Um- uh, and we don't call them that. We call them the right to work for less laws. <laughs> those, are, those are laws that make it illegal for a union and a company to negotiate a contract that requires members to uh, become part of the union if they hold jobs that are represented by the contract. Um, and they they're, in states where that is uh, the law, then it's entirely voluntary for people, whether they pay Uh, anything to the union or not, even though the union negotiates the contract, represents their grievances, uh, and what have you. Um, And those laws were put in place specifically to undermine the power that unions had at the ballot box um, by weakening them. And one of the ways they put those in place was was by inflaming divisions between workers along race lines. They um, ran a campaign so that workers, you know, touting that workers wouldn't be forced to be in the same union, white men and black men, and call each other brother. Uh, that was an upfront, visible, not behind the scenes campaign at the time that the first few of these laws were passed. And a lot of states have them now.
0: Yeah. And of course, it's
2: still so of the land for uh, public sector now, as of the Supreme Court decision on and- uh, the Janus. Decision.
0: And, I mean, when these laws go in, um, unions in those states become weaker and more impoverished, probably, right? So, David, one of the things that I was reading in preparation for this, and we posted it on our website, was this piece in, um, in, in... Uh, The Intelligencer by Eric Levitz, and he cited the statistics. Researchers found that right-to-work laws are associated with a 2.3% reduction in voter participation. I mean, that's like about the same amount of voter reduction as photo ID.
1: Yeah, these are really significant findings, and this this right-to-work study, I think, was was important because academics try to sort of struggle with how do you identify what the sort, what sort of the cause of either a rise or fall in voting. And so they could look at what happens when a state goes right to work, because generally that leads to lower union union rates, as Cynthia was describing. And then they followed on and said, well, what happens with this lower union density? And they described this sharp fall. Um, and that's consistent with other studies that show that about each percentage point Increase in union density or decrease is correlated with a quarter percent increase or decrease in voting, and so we have these really strong connections that are visible. And what's really amazing about this is, you know, many people are going to vote on their own without being a member of an organization, and so that these these boosts or or decreases because when unions are, are undermined are very strong, and they are among the strongest findings compared to other kinds of policy changes. Um, and so this is just, you know, as I was highlighting, the, the ability to vote is one of the important ways roles de- unions play in democracy, but we can talk about lots of others. There's this also a representation function that, you know, workers need someone to advocate for them behind the scenes, like corporations have lobbyists, and very few public interest organizations are out there. And so unions are one of the key representation organizations as well.
0: We, I was reading something also about how um, unions um, provide an important institutional function. I know Sean Rosenberg and some others have been writing about how direct democracy, and Jonathan Rausch wrote about this too, about how direct democracy may not be all that great if people don't have mediating institutions and how labor unions can play an important role in that. Cynthia, how does that work in practice here in Maine?
2: Um, I'm not sure I quite followed that argument. Sorry. that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) I did want to say one thing, though, and then so and maybe this will get around to that. If I could, I wanted to share a quote from Elaine Bernard, who um, headed up the Harvard University labor and work life program that I had on the wall in my office for years when I was the business manager for my union, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Um, And she said, and I think this is really key for what we're talking about here she said citizens cannot spend eight or more hours a day obeying orders and accepting that they have no rights legal or otherwise to participate in important decisions that affect them and that they can be fired at will for no cause and then be expected to engage in robust critical dialogue about the structure of our society eventually the strain of being deferential servants from nine to five diminishes our after hours Liberty and sense of civic entitlement and responsibility put simply the existing hierarchy of employment relations undermines our democracy I just think that's key
0: yeah and it does sort of get around to the idea of institutions me- both mediating and allowing workers to share the cost of being politically well well informed David pick that up the uh, Sean Rosenberg Jonathan sure. Rose in- institutional sure.
1: This The idea is that, you know, individuals on their own um, have to do a lot of things to help make democracy work. They are expected to understand all of the issues that are happening. There is, under, you know, understand the laws, how to vote. And the idea is that institutions, and among them unions, but also organizations like yours, you know, that provide – a range of services, including informing voters, helping them digest things. And this is really important in this era of sort of false news, where how do you know what's real and what actually, you know, is the truth. And these organizations can help you sort of understand that. And they also get it beyond you being a superhuman citizen and just let you help you live your life and like, oh, yes, I can trust this organization to sort of guide me through this process. And that's, you know. That's where when we talk about democracies, we're not always just talking about the formal laws. We're often talking about the civil society that helps the, orga- the function of democracy work. And I think you know that's where unions really play uh, an, an essential role. And it's kind of hard to imagine democracy without these kinds of institutions intermediate, intermediating between citizens and the government.
0: You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is democracy and unions. Do they need each other? Our guests this afternoon are David Madland, Resident Senior Fellow and the Senior Advisor to the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress, and Cynthia Finney, President of the Maine AFL CIO. This program was pre recorded on May 17th, so we're not taking any listener calls this afternoon. Um, So we were talking about the the role of institutions, and another thing I wanted to ask you about, Cynthia, was whether um, unions allow people to practice democracy in sort of a, like, are unions democratically organized, and do people get to practice democracy by participating in their union, and does that translate to being better citizens in uh, in an at-large way? So go ahead.
2: Sure. I mean, uh, the officers of unions are elected and there are very stringent laws in this country about that. An officer cannot serve for longer than three years without standing for re reelection uh, in a union in this country, at least those that are governed by the National Labor Relations Act. And um, they also I mean, the fundamental thing is they vote on their contract. Um, so they're, you know, it's kind of, kind of like a, a bit like a referendum, but, and they have input into that, uh, in most unions, um, different unions sort of have different levels of actual engagement around that. But those two things are fundamental that they elect their officers and that they vote on their contract. And then to go, you know, to go beyond some unions actually involve all members in negotiations. Some unions, uh, elect their stewards, um, all kinds of things, so, and most unions uh do at least some informing of people about the things that are happening politically that are going to impact them as workers or as unions, and some of them uh in in larger ways. so
0: I mean some of us who are old enough think of Jimmy Hoffa. And, you know, obviously there has been union corruption at at other times and in other generations. But David, comment on the way unions model democracy and help people learn how to participate.
1: Sure. You know, unions are often thought of as mini schools of democracy, teaching workers in sort of the basics because of the way they're internally organized. You know, this idea of voting for your leadership, the idea of participating in decisions and also then they show workers how this works in the larger political democracy. Um, but, the, you know, certainly the there's criticism about unions or any other organizations. They sometimes are corrupt or have corrupt leaders or, you know, whatever racist leaders, any of that. And that certainly has happened in the past. And, ha- you know, you can probably find any example. But I think when when people focus on those, they tend to miss the forest for the trees that any organization, a corporation, you know, a government, member of government, there is some level of of corruption or, or bad, you know, not fair play. But the sort of the, the forest for the trees is that unions enable democracy to work. And the scale of the problem is really pretty small. There are you know, studies that will look at the, the amount of, and, you know, there are strong laws that prevent union corruption. So it's really a pretty small problem. Opponents try to make a big deal out of it and indicate that that's what, what's inherent. But I think really missing the larger story that unions and democracy go together.
0: In the post-World War II era, you know, beginning with the Marshall Plan and then continue, continuing through the fall of the, um, of the Iron Curtain and the end of the Cold War, can, can you talk about some specific examples of the role that strong unions played in emerging democracies, um, you know, maybe Poland or Germany? And specifically, I mean, how did that work and how were unions important
1: in those emerging democracies, David? I, I, sure thanks. The so you mentioned Poland, you know, d- during communist rule in the 1970s, the labor movement was uh critical in um you know, forming the base of the opposition in demonstrating that that the people wanted an alternative and in fostering a leadership that eventually became the sort of democratic leadership of the country. In Germany after World War II, labor unions were uh, an essential component of making a strong democracy and, in fact, so much so that the U.S. government was was seeking to promote unions as a way to limit the power that was – the Nazi power, but also the corporate power that uh, had fostered and, and enabled Nazi rule. And the relationship – not only are union, and and that sort of happens today, too, in countries that are newly trying to become democratic – you know, South Africa after apartheid, for example, strongly promoted unions as a, a check, a way to sort of check power at the top and get citizens involved and engaged. You also see the opposite that when uh, totalitarians sort of seek power and try to undermine democracy, one of the first things they do is try to weaken unions. You saw that with with Hitler in, in Germany. You saw you see that in Hungary with Orban today. So they, there's this relationship that the the leaders understand, understand this, that unions are a check on authoritarian leaders and they help involve citizens and engage them. And that's true kind of in most every historical context we see.
0: Cynthia, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the AFL-CIO, your union had a very strong international branch for a long time. Are are you familiar with that? Talk a little about that.
2: Um, Well, they, they still do do work internationally. Um, uh, the federation does through through many unions and reaching across uh, the ocean and borders to other unions um, through a global global trade center, and um, uh, it, which is really important because it it matters to know what's going on, it, particularly in this era of globalization. It matters to be working across the borders as. Uh, capital works to be able to move capital to wherever there's cheap labor, you know, or uh, bad labor laws. Um, It matters to have that solidarity uh, across the borders, know what's happening and support each other. And um, so the uh, AFL-CIO is still engaged in that work uh, and it makes a difference.
0: And USAID and the federal government underwrote some of that for a long time, didn't they? That I don't know. I think, I think that might be true. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about what's happened to undermine the strength of unions um, in the post-war era. I read someplace that that no progressive labor legislation ha- has passed since Taft-Hartley in the 1940s, which was a pretty long time ago. Um, so what's happened, David, in the years since the end of World War II that has diminished the power of labor in the U.S. in particular?
1: Well, you highlighted one of the key factors, which was tap Partly, which was a law that was designed to weaken union power and do things like allow states to go right, right to work, and that was in the late 1940s. Summarize for our listeners
0: just a little bit what else was in there, as long as you're explaining it a little bit.
1: <laughs> well, it weakened workers' abilities to strike and picket and boycott, um, and, um, it, the, the whole goal, and that was sort of the debate around it, was really we, you know, the conservatives didn't didn't like the power that unions had. Um, and so they, they sought to do that. But that wasn't the only thing that happened. There were a number of court decisions. The latest Cynthia referenced was the Janus decision that recently made the public sector right to work. The, but the biggest thing, I think, was that the change in how businesses approached labor unions um for a period there, when when the law was relatively supportive of labor unions and union density was relatively high, some businesses fought and opposed, but generally they found a way to manage and deal with 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 them. But employer opposition to unions has become more and more uh, vehement, and they're you know the, within the law, the bounds of the law, they find lots of ways to make it very hard and difficult to inti- they intimidate, threaten workers, and make it hard to join a union. And then sometimes they cross. the the legal boundaries. And when they do that, there's no penalties under current law. So as employer opposition uh, increased and the law did not respond to this increased employer opposition, that has led to um, a significant decline in union density. And we can go into more, you know, this detail, but sort of a lot of my research is around um, around the world. The public policy needs to actively support unions to encourage them. And when it doesn't, and especially when it's hostile to them, unions are going to face very difficult uh, ability to recruit and retain members.
0: Cynthia, I want to ask you about two examples in particular that we think of all the time as having been um, inflection points in this. And one is Reagan busting up the Air Traffic Controllers Union. And the other was the opening of China to the w- to the World Trade Organization. How do you reflect on those in the course of this history?
2: Well, it's um, you can see if you look at charts uh, about uh, income and also share of uh, rise in productivity and the share of it that went to workers as product productivity rose and profit rose. You can see that as union density rose, uh, so did so did income and the share of profits going to workers. And you can see in that right on that that, uh, that year that Reagan did that with the air traffic controllers, you can see those two lines separate, um, because, uh, that was the beginning of really, um, you know, this wasn't just Ronald Reagan. He's a product of a political philosophy that has a lot of powerful supporters. Uh, he just got to sort of create this watershed moment, um, And you can see that once that happened, the foot was solidly in the door and the line diverges between the share that that workers get and the share that uh, and the the profits that are that are being made. And um, the agreement with China and many other trade agreements um, that have followed, uh, as I referenced earlier, make, um, you know, they they prioritize capital over labor. So money, the idea is to be able to move money across borders and not have people be able to move across borders, and to be able to have money invest in places where labor and environmental laws are weak, if they choose to, to make that as easy as possible, to um, to create that that uh, the ability of Um, corporations to make those decisions is above all else. And so as we make it easier and easier for those decisions to be made, workers suffer because workers cannot go where the jobs are the best or where the uh, labor protections are the best. Only money can go where they are the least.
0: David, do you want to comment on that as well about those inflection points and their importance in our history?
1: Sure. I think the Reagan decision to fire air traffic controllers was symbolically very important about the government no longer being on the side of encouraging and promoting union organizing. You know, the law had actually been undermined for years before, but this became a very visible uh, demonstration that the government wasn't going to be on your side if you're trying to unionize. Um, similarly, China um, and, you know, WTO, entrance into the WTO was an important inflection point because it highlighted how much the economy was about promoting global the rights of global capital and less about promoting the rights of workers and of course you know there's a lot of studies that will highlight the, those individual points but really to me they are most important as highlighting the underlying trends of that both of which policy as well as the shape of the global economy shifted in power away from workers and towards capital and employers.
0: I'm going to take a little station break here. When I come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the linkage between liberal democracy or advanced democracy and capitalism and regulated capitalism versus unregulated capitalism and how unions fit into that, just to tee that up. But here's the break. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is democracy and unions. Do they need each other? Our guests this afternoon are David Madland, Resident Senior Fellow, and the Senior Advisor to the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress, and also Cynthia Finney, who's the President of the Maine AFL CIO. Our topic today is Democracy and Unions Do They Need Each Other? This show was pre recorded on May 17th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, so you can contact us at newsweru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So, I'm, I mean, going back to our founding fathers, we have been an enterprise, you know, free enterprise, capitalistic country from the beginning. And I'm, I read some people think that capitalism and democracy go together. But our founders were kind of protecting us through checks and balances from unregulated avarice. I mean, I think they had a lot of cynicism about... He, human nature and the capacity for evil. Um, So I want to just talk, I mean, do do you feel, either one of you, that capitalism and democracy are linked? And then what do you think that means for regulated versus unregulated capitalism? Would you like to go first, Cynthia?
2: Sure. Uh, I think they're linked in many people's minds. I don't think they're inherently linked. We talk when we go to other countries and bring democracy there. We talk about it as if Capitalism is automatically coming along with it, and we act as if capitalism is automatically coming with it as we make changes to their economies that have not been voted on by the people. Democracy is about the voice of the people and the people voting for what they want, and they may or may not choose uh, what looks like uh, capitalism. So the two are linked in our many people's minds, but not inherently. David? David?
1: yeah I think, as Cynthia mentioned for the past you know maybe three or four decades, there' especially among sort of corporate corporations and sort of some promoters in the u s, this idea that if you promoted capitalism, you were going to promote democracy. I think the the links, as you alluded to Anne, are much uh, what you can question what the links really are. You go back to our founders, and they were very much concerned about extreme, uh, differences in economic inequality and a real worry that whether democracy was compatible with extreme inequality. Um, and that is a similar and a, I think a very related concern between uh, the relationship between capitalism and democracy, uh, because capitalism without regulation is inherently going to produce a few very, very big winners that are going to control most of the resources. Um, but in and so you have a worry about extreme inequality and capitalism undermining democracy. There are certainly elements of capitalism that go with democracy. There's a freedom in starting your own company, in moving, in, in having this ability to have some economic power on your own as an individual. But there are other elements that are deeply contradictory. This the inequality it permeates, but also how much it disrupts individual lives and culture and leaves people sort of disassociated and feeling uh, angry and vulnerable and wondering why their life has been uprooted and changed. And so that's where, to me, the ultimate answer, I think, is, as you alluded, and in your question, is is about a managing capitalism that, where you promote the kind of good things that are more directly related with with the direct links between capitalism and democracy, the freedoms that are inherent, but also when you can regulate and structure it so that you have a manageable level of inequality so that the top don't dominate so much, so that people's lives have ability to you know, stability so that they can participate. There's a long link in believing that you needed a middle class, a strong middle class to have a democracy. And so that's where I think this managing capitalism, and that's also one of the key ways unions play into the functioning of democracy is managing capitalism.
0: So let, let's spend a minute on that. Before I ask my ne- next question, David, I'll ask you to define for our listeners what is a plutocracy?
1: The idea of a plutocracy is that. A few very rich people control society, control economy, and control control democracy. And many worry that that's what we're approaching in the U.S.
0: So I, that's my question: Is plutocracy the inevitable destination of unregulated capitalism? Does you know money accumulate, capital accumulate, power accumulate, and is it some kind of a self-reinforcing loop? Either one of you can say yes to that.
1: (laughs) There's a certain strong relationship, but I think history is a little bit unpredictable. Certainly, you know, unrelated regulated capitalism leads to a few plutocrats controlling lots of things, but we don't exactly know what the public's going to do to respond to that. And the response is where they're often not good, but one of the responses could be to promote democracy. Other of the responses could be to promote, you know, socialism communism or kind of the fascism elements that we are seeing today where it's a a um you know populist linking linking corporate agenda in a very strange way so um it's hard to know but but generally the when you have a few plutocrats controlling things it is not good for democracy
0: so cynthia do you you sense that the the trend towards plutocracy in america and the widening gap in incomes has created a populist resentment and has that colored our politics in the 21st century
2: i do think that it has and i also think that the undermining of unions that we talked about earlier has because it has it has given workers less power in the workplace and also even workers who don't have unions when union density is higher Uh, the benefits of that spread in terms of what it creates for a market uh, for employment. And so um, workers have felt the undermining, even if they don't know what it is, um, they have felt and experienced that. And, and people are reacting to that and they're angry um, about it.
0: Do you think that um, American institutions, legislators, legislative bodies, government bodies would do a meaningful job of regulating capitalism without some institutional incentives, David? You know what I mean?
1: I'm not hundred percent sure. You know, I think the fear is that, you know, in our system, we have allowed politicians to be very dependent upon the contributions of a few wealthy people that can make or break their ability to campaign and we allow money to have far more influence than most other countries in the political system. And so, yes, there's a really big fear right now that we, uh, we, money dominates far more than it should. And the way to one of the ways to address it is not only to deal with the, the power of money, but also to build countervailing institutions that help ordinary citizens participate in politics, like unions that aggregate the power um, and provide a check on on corporate power because the wealthy are always going to have ways to influence the political system even if you limit their money you need a way to get people partic- to participate you need a way for them to have some influence behind the scenes um, so yes I think there's a you know in- an, institu- an important institutional check on uh, money and power in politics
2: without unions I think who, oh, oh go oh, ahead Cynthia please I think it's also true that you cannot do a good job um, creating or or running a system on behalf of people who you aren't connected to and don't understand. And so if um, if it were not for unions bringing the voice of everyday working people to the debate, to the national debate, to the halls of Congress, to the halls of the state house, um, even well-meaning legislators uh, might have a very hard time making meaningful legislation that included the needs um, of those people. Unions play that really critical role in our, um, government and in our economy. If
0: unions
1: did If didn't I could just th- chime in. Oh. Yeah, go ahead, David. Sorry, I was just going to add on to what Cynthia said. But I think that's, it's the essence and the genius of democracy is the idea that the public voice has an influence on what society There's that there's sort of lots of information contained in, in, in the lived experience that people have, and you need to be able to have that bubble up and inform the decisions, and unions are sort of the key connector between the grassroots and the kind of more elite political system.
0: If it weren't, if it's not unions, what other institutional players are there in American civic life that could play that role? Can either of you think of any?
1: Well, you work for, you know, the legal man voters is obviously a very important institution in in this. Um, And there are many other sort of key elements of civil society from the local rotary clubs to the PTAs to this is but unions are the biggest and most important element of civil society because they represent the most people and at their peak they represented the vast majority they are also one of the few cross-class organizations and cross-race gender like they they represent the entire working class of the united states which is something few other organizations can do and you also if you look at other countries they're just in theory, it is possible that other organizations or institutions could step up, but we don't have a real-life example of another institution performing all the roles that unions do.
0: So we've invited you both on here basically to make the case that unions are important to democracy. We didn't invite somebody on who's going to say, nah, that's not true. But if we had that person on, and I hate to sort of put this on you, but what would what would somebody say that thought this was a bunch of hooey? Like, what is the ar- argument against this premise? Cynthia, do you have an idea?
2: Well, I haven't heard one that holds water. The ones I've heard are myths about unions. You alluded to them before when you were talking about corruption and things like that. So the the arguments I hear are that. And also, there's, a, um, there's currently a myth that's held by a lot of people about the power of individuals. And... Um, uh, that's a very powerful myth in our culture currently, um, uh, and the, the rights of individuals actually are being, uh, you know, defended by some other forces uh, who are against things like unions. Um, but uh, yeah, that's.
0: I mean, you're alluding to freedom and individualism and the right not to have to join a union and that sort of, sort of thing, right? David, what do you, yeah. what, do you what do you think? People would say who who don't agree with our premise.
1: Well, I think they would allude to the sort of flaws that some unions have had, or you know, around whether it's corruption or. But sometimes they try to question whether union leadership actually represents its membership, and I think that is sort of the perhaps the most misguided, because we, you know we talked about unions internally are democratic; they leadership is elected by its membership. Um, the other thing that's, I think, really interesting about what unions actually advocate for is there's was a really important study done about what the public preferred for policies and which organizations pushed for those policies. And the study found that unions advocate for policies that the public supports, and we're one of the few, if only, organization that really did that, whereas most other existing organizations largely represent business interests and largely pushed against policies that the public supported. So the myth is that unions don't actually represent what the public wants, and the truth is very much that they are one of the real few institutions that does represent them, and I think that's largely because of who and what they are. They represent the the people that chose them as their members.
0: I mean, we sometimes hear that unions are um, a drag on innovation. I've heard this said about unions protecting incompetent teachers, and we're hearing it now as unions protecting bad cops. I mean, what, what is the, the truth behind this, the unions that being a drag on innovation or um, sometimes pr- protecting against important reforms in the institutions that they represent? I see you nodding, Cynthia, so go ahead. <laughs>
2: Um, yeah, I've, I've heard that stuff, (laughs) but, um, you know, I can't speak to, I can't speak to how it works in police unions, but in my union, anyone who wasn't uh, doing their job didn't get to keep their job. They got to have a hearing and be defended by the union, but they did not get to keep their job if they actually weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And, and the unions that I am familiar with, that's how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you know, you, you get some defense, but, um, because people are also fired uh, wrongly, uh, as we know. And so the union is a defense against that. Um, As far as uh, innovation, uh, you know, know, I don't know. I don't know how democracy could uh, thwart innovation. And, you know, if you have a culture in your company that's not allowing innovation, it's not the union that's in the way of it. It's something else that's damping down the, you know, the intelligence and contributions of the people who are there. It's not going to be the union.
0: I mean, we sometimes hear that, um, or it's insinuated at least, that between employers and unions, it's always a win-lose situation. Like, if the union gets something, they Profitability of the company suffers. If the profitability of the country of the company prevails, then the, the workers suffer. I mean, are there models like in Germany and elsewhere where I know unions have um, seats on boards of directors and so forth, where it's not such a win lose situation where unions and companies work for mutual benefit? David,
1: well, I think even in the U.S. you find examples, plenty of examples of win win situations where. Workers have some influence in the direction of the corporation because they're unionized, or even perhaps sometimes on the seat of uh, the board of, and board. And so, you can think of organizations from, you know, like Costco or Kaiser Permanente Health um, or Southwest Airlines, where. So you don't just have to look to Germany, but certainly there's there's a model in Germany where workers are, you know, half of the seat of board members in many companies. Um, and have what's also they have strong unions, and they also have what's called works councils, where workers have some input and try to negotiate. And this, I think, leads to an, a really important, that there are opportunities for win-win. And in fact, the research on unions shows that they generally can boost productivity and economy because one of the things they are doing is providing a, this conduit between what the workers want and the, you know having a facilitating a dialogue with management that is actually a real a real dialogue. And this this discussion and collaborative relationship can lead to strong you know, strong productivity gains. It doesn't always happen, but in general it, it does.
0: All right. I'm going to take one more break. And then when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about what could happen in the U.S. now to strengthen unions, make them stronger, and some of the legislation that's pending at the federal level. So you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is democracy and unions. Do they need each other? Our guests this afternoon are David Madland, resident senior fellow and the senior advisor to the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress, and Cynthia Finney, president of the Maine AFL-CIO. This program was pre-recorded on the afternoon of May 17th, so we're not taking any listener calls at this time. So let's talk about what could happen to improve the circumstances in the U.S. to strengthen unions and help them be a more vital force in a vibrant democracy. What do you say, Cynthia, if you could be queen for a day, what would it be?
2: <laughs> well, a lot of unions are not waiting for someone else to improve it and are working on, on um, getting better at organizing and uh, reaching out and organizing more workers, um, both internally and outside but also there's really important piece of legislation in Washington right now called the pro act, which stands for protecting the right to organize. And you mentioned earlier that there hadn't been any, you know, labor progress. I think you called it progressive labor legislation since Taft Hartley. It's actually the national labor relations act that there's been nothing since, which was 1935. Everything since then has been to weaken that power, including the Taft Hartley. Um, so, you know, that was the first big one that, that weakened it, um, and it, it's been a trend ever since to weaken the power of unions and to, uh, similar to the assault on voting rights, to make it more difficult for workers to form unions. The things that, the hoops that workers have to jump through who want to form a union um, are nothing that we would ever call a democracy if it was the government doing it to their people um, to elect their, their leaders. The rights that the employer has to interfere in the election are tremendous. And the restrictions on the union um, are strong and the penalties for the um, company violating what rules there are, um, are minimal.
0: I mean, I know people are litigating against the Bessemer thing, right? There's an appeal going on. is some of what you're talking about the reason you think that Amazon um, thing went wrong?
2: um, Yes. Uh, It's not at all unusual for workers not to get a union on their first try, but in Bessemer, The union was working on organizing um, a group of about 1,000 workers, and the company was successful in what they call appealing the bargaining unit, saying, no, no, that's not a logical group of workers to organize by themselves. It should really be this group, and I believe that that ballooned the group all of a sudden to 5,000 workers. So this union that had a campaign that they thought they were working with 1,000 workers suddenly had to step up and try to organize 1,000 workers, and the company has the right on work time to tell the workers, you have to come to this meeting and to say pretty much anything they want to about unions and the union that's trying to organize them. The union has no right to be on the property, the union that the workers have chosen to work with. Uh, only the workers themselves can be on the property. Uh, the, the company has the ability to restrict in certain ways how you know what kind of communication even the workers who are there can do about it. Um, You know, so those things and many more uh, came into play to really set an impossible hurdle for those workers to cross to be able to join the union that they were working with to bring, you know, to become union in their workplace.
0: David, tell our listeners what the PRO Act would do and whether you think it's a good idea and what else we could consider.
1: Sure. The PRO Act is a great start. It's Ensures that workers have have some basic rights to join a union, um, and makes the process for joining a union fair. So, as Cynthia mentioned, for example, there's no financial penalty if an employer crosses the law and fires a worker for joining a union. The PRO Act would ensure there are some financial penalties, so there's a disincentive for employers for doing that. Um, it would also limit the forced one-on-one meetings that managers can have with their workers, um, and it would help. Uh, So it it would help in a lot of ways getting workers to be able to join a union through a more reasonable and fair process that's closer to what we would expect in a political democracy. But I think it should be only the first step, because uh, my view is that ensuring workers have basic rights is the the groundwork. But we also want to go further and actually encourage union membership, because much of this conversation has been about how unions are a public good. They promote an essential thing, democracy for everyone, whether a union member or not. and the thing about public goods is you get less of them than necessary because everyone else can free ride on the efforts that this organization does. And so we want to in order to ca- to counter this this de- you know depression of union membership, we actually want policy to provide incentives and encourage a real platform that would make it easier for unions to recruit. So, and then the last thing that I think we want to do is not only uh, improve the way we bargain, we U S we bargain mostly by worksite by worksite, and that can be very important, but most other countries also bargain at a higher level, like sectoral bargaining. And that covers a lot more workers and it means more workers benefit from a union contract. So I think the things we want to do are the basic rights, like the pro act, but also encourage union memberships and promote better kinds of bargaining.
0: So by sectoral, you mean like industry by industry?
1: Exactly. And we have a history of this in the United States. But unfortunately, our law makes it very difficult to do.
0: Uh, and I, at that, the comment that you made about public good and how communities that have strong unions have more public goods, not just better wages, but more civic good, right? I mean, that's a pretty important concept. Just say a little bit more about that.
1: Um, Sure. Well, I was referring to this uh, public good a little bit as economists do, where there's something that benefits everyone and some for people that's uh, lighthouse or public data that sort of everyone can use. And but your use of it doesn't take it away from from others. And in in fact, there's no way to exclude you from benefiting from that. So we want to actively encourage that or have the government encourage. Otherwise, we're not going to get enough lighthouses or data or unions. And so the things that unions do, as we've talked about, they promote democracy, but they also promote social and economic mobility. So just living in an area that has higher union density, you're more likely as as someone who was born to poor parents to be able to rise to be middle class or wealthy than you are if you were born in another kind of area. So unions have all sorts of these good spillover effects, and that in order to have the right amount of them or have more of them, we need to promote them.
0: Cynthia, David um, had a couple of wish list items um, beyond the PRO Act. I wonder if you have some you'd like to see as well.
2: Well, um, yes, it, it is a good start. And I, I think I'm so engaged in working on, we're trying to really work hard so that people understand the legislation, union members, and the general public. And so I haven't thought a whole lot beyond <laughs> it. But I do, agree, I do agree that it's a good start because, um, you know, we really want we really want working people and everyone just to be on an equal power par uh, with people who own companies. You know, it's uh, ownership shouldn't be the ticket to being able to get your way. This is we should be an actually democratic society that's um, really engaging and helping everyone to flourish and to be fully at the table. So,
1: well, we're if I can just follow yeah, go up. Ahead uh really briefly, on the pro act it's so important now, I said it's just a start, but it is it is where the fight is right now, and it's there's it's pa it recently passed the House of Representatives, and the Senate is considering it, and President Biden has been a strong supporter so it, the pro act is really a critic is critical. It's what's happening right now and where the debate is, and so we need that's the the first thing that needs to happen, but it does need to happen.
0: Thank you both. We are kind of running out of time. Um, at this point, And I want to give you each a couple of minutes to wrap up and summarize our conversation today and leave our listeners with the most important thought that you bring to the conversation. So, Cynthia, go ahead. Take a couple minutes and summarize for us.
2: I'm just really pleased that we've had this conversation today. I feel that democracy and unions just do go hand in hand. I feel that we're essential um, to a functioning democracy and also that um, democracy is inherent in what we do, and so they're they're inseparable, and it's really great to acknowledge that and think about how to strengthen what we have.
0: That's great. David, it looks like you've got three minutes, because Cynthia was very brief, but um, go ahead and take the last three minutes and summarize this important topic for us.
1: Great. Well, I will echo much of what Cynthia said, and first by just thanking you, Ann, and the League of Women Voters for having this forum. This is absolutely, a, you know, the central concern right now about the country is the fate of our democracy. People on both sides of the policy and political debate are really worried about our, the, the shape of our country and where we're going. And so the ability to have a, a long and informed discussion about how we address that and to think about the role that unions play is, is a key first step. So thank you for that. And then, you know, why I think it's so important is unions are really vital to addressing some of the core challenges in our country right now. You know, the fate of our democracy is, I think, hangs in the balance. We are worried about a near record levels of economic inequality where the wealthy have too much power. We are also worried about breakdowns in basic civic institutions and our trust in voting. And we are worried that are the desires of the public isn't leading to policy reforms, and unions can help on all of those fronts. They help in the, in the economy by ensure workers get paid more and reducing levels of inequality, so that overall power differentials are more reasonable. But they also help workers participate in democracy, more likely to vote, and also more likely to trust in the basic institutions that they're functioning because they're see their see their their voice and their. Um power reflected in what actually happens. So you know we can see this just and we this concern and this understanding of the relationship between union and democracy is not just about what's happening in the United States today. It's been a consistent theme throughout the u s history as well as uh, the history of most other countries that unions and democracy really go hand in hand they're about equalizing power and ensuring ordinary citizens have a voice and i think that's really what's needed in our country today and i and i thank you for letting me have the chance to talk about it
0: cynthia i saw you gave a speech the other night about union people running for office and here in maine of course we've got clean elections and we have had some union people run for office want to plug that quickly
2: Yeah, sure. We run a worker candidate training program, and uh, it's really great to have people in the halls of the legislature, uh, on the town council, on the school board, who come from the working class and know what the working class uh, struggles and issues are and can speak to those. Really important places for all of our folks to be in, so we train them uh, if they're interested in learning to do that. One of of those roles we play to support uh, democracy.
0: Well, thank you both so much for this conversation today. Um, We thought it was an important topic and we're glad that you did too. I hope our listeners agree. We are now out of time. So um, thank you to our guests this afternoon. David Madland is the resident senior fellow and senior advisor to the American Worker Project at the Center for American Progress. He is also author of the new book, like brand new, Reunion, how bold labor reforms can repair, revitalize, and reunite the United States. I think if you want to do a deep dive on this subject, um, you might consider that. And then Cynthia Finney is the president of the Maine AFL-CIO. She was the first woman elected to that position and has served there since 2015. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming live at weru.org. Our website is lwme.org. For more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series, subscribe to our podcast at lwme.org or email us down east at lwvme.org. Thank you. We'll see you next month.